Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitment with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Trudy Govier. Trudy is Emerita Professor of Philosophy at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. Her research is focused on the nature of argumentation and questions concerning social trust, forgiveness, and reconciliation. She's the author of one of the most influential texts in informal logic, which is titled A Practical Study of Argument, and it's now in its seventh edition. Her 2002 book is titled Forgiveness and Revenge, and it remains essential reading on those topics. Moreover, Trudy has been involved in reconciliation and mediation work. She has served to moderate many political debates in Canada. Hello, Trudy. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Well, I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. Let's get to it. The political scene, Trudy, uh, especially in the United States these days, but also arguably in Europe, is saturated, it seems to me, with a kind of communicative practice that many would call argument. It is surely argumentative in the sense that it is adversarial and combative, but one wonders whether there's really much argument to be found uh, in the United States political scene, at least these days. Now, you've thought a lot about arguments, what they are, how they work, how they're to be distinguished from other kinds of communicative exchanges. Um, and you've also thought a great deal about how people who are engaged in arguing with each other or ought to behave when they are arguing. So maybe a place to begin would be with the question of what, in your view, is an argument? Well, I think um, your introductory comments, Bob, um, do uh, suggest that we consider an important distinction. The word um, argument uh, 
seems to have at least uh, two distinct uses. I mean, one is when we talk about an argument in terms of a fight, like these people had so many arguments, they finally got divorced. So the argument is like a quarrel or a, or a fight with a lot of um, hostility and exchanges and not necessarily any consideration of giving reasons or evidence. And the other sense of argument, which is more relevant to um, to logic and epistemology, is when an argument involves citing evidence or reasons in support of a, a claim that is the conclusion. And um, it's that sense of argument that... Um, philosophers emphasize when they teach logic and teach critical thinking, it's that sense of argument that I was focused on in the various editions of my textbook. So we could think of argument in that sense as the exchange of reasons and evidence in support of claims and the examination of those reasons and or that evidence. And so I think what you can find when you get an intensely polarized politics is that people have lots of arguments in terms of quarrels and disputes and fights, sometimes even descending into physical violence, whereas you have relatively little argument in the more the sense more closely related to knowledge and reasoning. So you may have a lot of quarrels and very few exchanges of reasons, reasons and evidence. And um, I observe your country as, you know, a very concerned outsider. And of course, I'm dependent on the press um, for my impressions. My impressions are that you have a lot of quarrels and a lot of emotional intensity and a lot of animosity and not very much exchange of reasons. Um, that's how it um, seems to many of us here on our side of uh, the, uh, the the border to the north. Um, so you're not alone uh, in that uh, estimation of uh, the, Ameri- the U.S. political scene. Um, do you think that... Um, Proper argumentation, that is argumentation in the, the sense of the exchange of reasons and the attempt to look at evidence. Um, how much agreement um, about what constitutes evidence or what, um, what, what reasons are, uh, how much agreement about those sort of what we might think of as philosophical uh, essentials is required in order for there to be argument in the proper sense? Well, I guess I'm an optimist, Bob, because I would say um, not too much. I mean, it's been my experience that um, even when people pose uh, somewhat strange remarks, there's usually something that a person can click onto in response. I mean, for one thing, um, one can always listen attentively. One can always thereby acknowledge the, the other person as a person. One can always acknowledge that that other person has a point of view. And um, I think it's possible to, um, to question uh, reasons and claims and do so in a relatively polite way, such as, well, do you think there are one point four billion Muslims in the world? Do you think they're all the same? For instance, I mean, you can you can 
I'm not sure whether that succeeds, but I think you can attempt to make um, to raise non-offensive questions and sort of get going. Um, so, I mean, I guess I would say I don't really see that there is a a complete absence of agreement, or if there appears to be a complete absence, I don't really see that reasoned discourse is impossible. I might also mention, I mean, in conflict resolution, people emphasize interests, you know, shared interests. And, I mean, there there certainly are shared interests, you know, in having a, um, a country safe from invasion and having jobs for one's children and so on. Uh, so I, I think there will be a basis for um, for the reasonable discourse. Wonderful. What? Um, so that seems that seems right too, and and, and a well placed um, kind of optimism. Um, one thing that uh, looks uh, like it adds an additional challenge uh, to the to our optimism uh, on this score is how much of political public discourse seems aimed at impugning the other side's conception of evidence, reasons, uh, civility, um, rationality, that it looks as if um, a lot of the hostility in public discourse uh, is sort of focused on um, these sort of second-order concepts. It's it's not just that people disagree over taxation or immigration policy. It's that um, in discourse, people spend a lot of time um, trying to impugn their political opponents' um, um, competence as arguers. Well, I think... Um I mean, from what I've seen, I guess there is a lot of that. And, of course, that's the kind of thing that philosophers and logicians have traditionally um, criticized, you know, emphasizing don't attack the person, consider the claim, and so on and so on. Um, so, I mean, that's that's um, undesirable. So um, if, if one is the recipient of that, I mean, if one is be labeled fat or ugly and one's claims are not attended to or one is called a bitch or something worse, if the one is the recipient, it's, um, it's really hard to deal with that emotionally. But I mean, I guess the best advice I would have would be to just try really hard to get back to the actual topic. Um, if one is the speaker or writer, then the advice is quite simple. Just avoid doing that. I mean, however tempting that is, because really the, the, the important social problems are not whether Mrs. So-and-so has big hips or whether somebody is too thin or too tall, or whether they went to this or that law school. I mean, the problems are these these issues about borders and taxation and health care and single mothers and birth control and so on and so on. And so to to make every effort to to return the topic and and maybe you could even say, well, you know, I. You know, I know you don't like vegetarians, but you know the point is we have to 
work out this issue about taxation. Right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just um, these things, although they're they're multiple and they're not. I mean, from my observation, I don't think these things are entirely restricted to um, one side of the debate or the other. I think people who regard themselves as liberal progressive thinkers can also lapse into this when they, you know, um, criticize the hairstyles or the diet or fashion sense of people on the other side. I mean, these are temptations, but they should be resisted. Well, that sounds right as well. Um, Do you have any thoughts about, um, especially in the States, there's a lot of um, allegations of um, that trust, that that what are presented and what present themselves as media, uh, news uh, uh, outlets, places where people go to get their information about the topics that they are expected as citizens to discuss and debate and deliberate together uh, uh, over um, the the allegation of fake news seems um, to present another one of these challenges where if we can't if citizens can't agree on what counts as actual information um, it looks like it will be hard for them to have an argument in your sense about uh, a policy question. Well, I think that's um, true, Bob, and I, I think it's a really serious problem. I, I wish I had a good response on that, but um, I think, well, there are some distinctions that help somewhat here. I think there's a difference between saying something that's false and Say and lying in the sense that if you say something false and you believe it, you're not actually lying. I mean, you, you, you're mistaken, right? right? There's also a distinction between promise breaking and lying. And, um, I think those, those things are, are quite important, but that doesn't really address the core issue of so-called alternate facts or fake news. And I guess that you have to, in a way, shift the debate to, you know, if if so-and-so that you're debating to with regards a certain media outlet, say um, NBC or the New York Times, if they if that person regards that outlet as unreliable, I guess you have to move to reasons at another level, like why? Why do you think this is a source of of fake news? How do you define fake news? And I I don't know how one can, you know, convey this message. But, I mean, there is a a difference between the facts and an interpretation of the facts or a view of the facts from a certain perspective. I mean, people can view the same fact from several different perspectives. I mean, it might be a fact that some child has misbehaved in school, and you could view that from the point of view of a principal or a teacher or a parent or a religious official, and you could look at that fact in different ways, and you could get um, different implications from it, but um, there there will be some basic fact. You know, either Johnny kicked another child or he did not, um, and, the, and there, there will be that basis. So uh, when that 
common core falls out. It is a very, uh, to say the least, um, a very serious problem. Um, we we don't appear to be experiencing this problem here in Canada, at least not yet. But uh, who knows? I mean, our day will come. And I think we have to struggle to not feel smug when we look at our political scene and compare it with some others. So that's that's one of our problems. <laughs> um, one, uh, one 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 further sort of um, worry. I'm I, I, I'm I'm an optimist too, along with you, Trudy. But um, uh, uh, sometimes um, it helps optimism to, uh, to to think through some of the challenges. Um, in the states, uh, w- one of the things that um, seems increasingly prevalent uh, and uh, disconcerting is um, a kind of tribalism that seems present within contexts that are supposed to be properly argumentative. And the kind of tribalism I have in mind is um, uh, r- runs the following thought, let's say. Um, to be committed to a, you know, our particular position or our group's position about immigration is to, is to regard certain opposing positions as so beyond the pale as to not be worthy of a hearing or as so beyond the pale such that Anybody who would adopt that opposing position is thereby in not a citizen in good standing, uh, not in his or her right mind, um, morally craven to the point where it's no use in talking to that person. That seems a, a particularly troubling phenomenon uh, that is becoming, it seems to me, more present in political debate. Um, any thoughts about I mean that looks like a real challenge for argument for proper argument right well I mean I think it's a huge challenge and I think it's a phenomenon that um, one one can find in many places including um, here in here in Canada and it's a strange thing where persons um, positions and stances on social issues really become a, an aspect of that person's identity and sense of social belonging. And, you know, insofar as they have that status, they do become very emotionally uh, difficult to to challenge. So I don't know... Um, quite what to say about that. Um, just in terms of optimism, I think it's really important to distinguish optimism from hope. So good. I guess um, I would say hope is when you when you think that good outcomes are possible. <laughs> and optimism is when you when you really think they're they're quite certain, you know, the you know, <laughs> things just will work out. And I guess if we keep that distinction in mind, I'm not I'm not fully an optimist, I would say I remain hopeful. So I think there there are things that one has to kind of clutch onto and and work with. And I think you're right that it you know, to the extent that various positions on social problems become uh, an aspect of identity and group identity and almost tribal group identity, um that's a, a serious um 
problem indeed. Um, what can we say? I mean, are there is it is it possible to have common projects with common goals so people um, work together and achieve something together? That cooperate and thereby gain a sense of trust. I mean, I, I don't know. Some of the theories about political reconciliation have mentioned, uh, you know, a kind of indirect re- reconciliation based on action rather than exchange. So suppose that person A was a perpetrator against person B, and person A refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing. So person B has no sense that he or she should forgive A, because there's been no acknowledgement, um, so you get stymied if you if you think of one of these standard scenarios of the perpetrator, uh, you know, realizing the significance of his or her action and uh, thereby apologizing and so on. You get you get a, a standstill, but sometimes it's uh, necessary for A and B to get together to remove the garbage during a strike or some such thing, and you can have a kind of process that's. Um, more grounded in common action than it is in discourse. So, I mean, you, you might, I don't know, imagine one of the so-called tribal groups um, going to a, a venue where, you know, they were working on clearing litter out of a park or something in, in the territory of another supposedly tribal group. I, I mean, I don't know. I think in some of these cases, um you have to sort of look outside reasoned discourse for something else. You know, that that is um, a thought that um, I've been, I've found myself thinking uh, a whole lot uh, since November, but maybe leading up to November. Um, so I was glad to hear you say that, that maybe um, our conception of, Democratic politics as um, fueled or driven by reason exchanging and arguments, um, um, a proper argument among citizens. Maybe all of that, um, uh, all of those practices, which seem to me to, to be the right view about how democracies work, well, um, maybe they all have to succeed. There has to be a background of shared experiences that are not um, overtly about reason giving with respect to political matters. Uh, I think that your example of the the cleaning litter from the park um, is an important, it's an important piece of our, of our political picture. That's not always fully appreciated. I think that in order to argue well with my fellow citizens about some policy question over which we we disagree that might be very urgent and very important to us, uh, especially might be very important for us to get right uh, as as a as a society. Um, I have to maybe there has to be a fund of um, exchanges with others that aren't really about politics in that sense at all, um, so that um, it won't be so easy uh, when it comes time to have the disagreement for me to impugn those on the other side as benighted or wicked or um, uh, epistemically incompetent, um, that maybe we need to just broaden our conception of what democratic politics is all about. It's, it's not all about reason exchange. It's about reason exchange only after some shared social experiences are, 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 are well in place. Does that seem 
write to you? In, I, I, I would say those shared experiences and so on are certainly helpful. I mean, it's a good thing that democratic politics isn't only about reasoned exchange because there's quite a dearth of reasoned exchange, as you mentioned in your introductory comments. But I think, you know, looking underneath what you just said, there is actually some basis for hope because, of course, people who disagree about even these serious matters like border control, um, immigration, taxation, and climate change. I mean, many of these people are sending their children to the same schools. They're participating in local baseball or hockey um, games. They may be in similar organizations, whether it's Rotary or the YMCA or the YWCA. That is, many of these people already are doing certain things cooperatively and successfully. So I guess then the question would become how how can you how can you build on that? I mean there there certainly are at least some important frameworks where people who disagree about national and international policy um, do work together successfully. That seems right. Do you have any, um, uh, you've been very generous with your time, and so um, uh, I wanted to ask as a last question, do you have any advice to um, uh, to citizens, particularly maybe in the United States, as to how they might uh, rehabilitate public discourse, given uh, some of the challenges that we've just been talking about, or how they might improve the state of uh, civility in their politics? Well, I'm really honored, um, Bob, to be asked that question, and I do have to remind people that, of course, I, I am an outsider. Um, I would say pay attention to each other, listen to each other, respect each other, ask for reasons, examine the reasons, acknowledge when there are alternate interpretations of the same fact. Um, maybe, maybe just learn to, um, well, that's the wrong word, um, just uh, try to deliberate carefully and acknowledge that um, there are many contexts where certainty isn't possible. I mean, we may intensely desire it, and we may feel that we get it from certain kinds of reasoning or certain people, but, you know, for many topics, we, we can't re- realistically have what we would like to have. And I think um, it's it's important to recognize that. I think that I was talking to another American person a couple of weeks ago about these issues, and she thought that the the, the desperate craving for certainty was a powerful force behind these things. So I I think um, you know we 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 do have to pay attention to the differences that are there and try to listen respectfully to people, even when in our private inner mind or brain we we may think they're really pretty stupid, um, that should not be expressed and it should not be behaviorally indicated, and we should do our very best to acknowledge and listen to other people. Well, Trudy, thank you so much. Uh, that That is a, a hopeful uh, uh, and I think very sound um, bit of advice uh, to offer us. Um, thank you for for appearing today on the Why We Argue podcast. And well, thank. 
Bob, and good luck with your series. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into the podcast, which is produced, I will remind you, by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at, at Public Humility. Thank you, and bye-bye for now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.